You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of February, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, 16 states joined to sue the Trump administration over the president's move to ignore Congress and fund his planned border wall with Mexico. My guests, Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb, will be discussing the latest and the day's other top stories, including China plans to create a new economic region to rival Silicon Valley, which hinges on bringing Hong Kong and Macau closer to the mainland. We ask what it means for trade and the politics of those two regions. And we head to Brazil to unpack Jair Bolsonaro's move to sack a high-profile cabinet minister very early into his presidency. Plus... Together, you and I and our 2016 campaign began the political revolution. Now it is time to complete that revolution and implement the vision that we fought for. The field of contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination grows ever larger with one very familiar senator. All that ahead on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Michael Goldfarb, veteran journalist and broadcaster. Welcome both to the program. We begin by turning our attention to the U.S. and the latest in a constitutional crisis where 16 states have joined in a coalition to put forth a lawsuit over Donald Trump's plan to use emergency powers to pay for a border wall with Mexico. The lawsuit was filed in San Francisco and argues the president does not have the power to divert funds because it is Congress that, in fact controls spending. Trump declared the national emergency last week when lawmakers declined to give him the funding he so desires. Presidents have declared states of emergency more than 60 times in the past 40 years, but never after Congress rejected funding for a particular policy. So, uh, Michael, New York and California have joined this lawsuit. Huge states with a lot of pull, a lot of power. Is Donald Trump concerned about that? Well, he predicted this. I mean, it's one, for a man who's often wrong, he was actually right in this aston- astonishing piece of performance art last Friday when he gave a press conference in the Rose Garden. He rambled on and explained he was going to do it. They were, he was going to get sued. They'd sue in the Ninth Circuit, which is a federal court mm-hmm. located in San Francisco. Um, this is a really interesting thing because... In my lifetime, America has gone through the looking glass completely. When I was a kid, um, people who were against civil rights, voting rights for African Americans would say the states, individual states, have the right to make their own laws on these things. So you had this call of states' rights, which Mm. was the rallying cry of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And so now you you have Trump in the form of a, you know, an imperial or... He'd like to be the emperor president. And the states' rights are the liberal states. They are saying, well, no, 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 no. We, as the states, had expected certain monies from the federal government, which you are raiding to build this wall. That's not legal because this is money that's pledged from the federal budget already for us to interdict drugs because that's at a state level as well as a federal level. Um, certain defense spending is dispersed at a state level, not at a federal level. So they're suing, and it's, it, it may seem to listeners that, that that's a bit, you know, 
abstract and not getting at the moral mm. importance of saying, well, no, you just don't build an 1,800-mile-long wall on your southern border um, and against a non-existent uh, immigration horde. But in fact, the way to stop this is in the courts, and it is entirely likely that the Ninth Circuit will find for the states mm. and put a block on the money that Trump needs to build this wall and, and might well say it isn't a national emergency or call on the Trump administration to detail further what is an emergency in this situation, which would be hard to prove since... In fact, there have been fewer people crossing mm. illegally from Mexico into the United States in the in, in the last few years than at any time. Um, so this looks set to go further. The Ninth Circuit will probably rule in favor of the states. They'll ultimately appeal it to the Supreme Court, and we'll see what happens. Well, it seems like a pretty serious measure, uh, Elizabeth, which we could possibly block action from Trump on the border wall for years if it's perhaps tied up in court. Uh, how do you see this playing out? Well, I think since life is imitating art, I'd refer you to uh, two key texts. One is the film Vice, mm. which is tells the story of the concentration of power in presidential hands. Um, and, and the other is the third uh, season of House of Cards, in which President Frank Underwood does exactly this. Mm. <laughs> you know, he declares an emergency. He declares his unemployment program as a, you know, unemployment as an emergency. And he then raids the, 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 the budget, which is intended to deal with natural disasters. Um, so I think if you want to see how it's going to play out, mm. I would go back and watch season three again. And of course, it's challenged in court. <laughs> well, uh, but but you know, Donald Trump will never be a victim of the Me Too movement as as Frank Underwood was. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> well, as Kevin Spacey was. <laughs> as Kevin, but aren't they one and the same? <laughs> yeah, but I yes, this will hold it up. Mm. Um, but I think that that isn't. You know, given that nobody actually wants this wall except for a very small base that that still support Trump, he can present himself as the man who you know is building the wall, but is stopped by these evil mm. Democrats who don't care about rapists and drug dealers, um, whilst he, the president, is heroically trying. So politically, it may not do him that much harm. I mean, I don't think his base follows the detail too closely. They, well, they certainly yeah. don't. And, and, the, and the interesting thing is, of course, until the first week of January. He, the Congress was in the ha both houses were in the hands of the Republicans. If they wanted to fund the wall, they would have done so, but they didn't because they know it's an idiotic waste of money. However, it does allow him to play and grandstand, and you know he, he watches his boys, his homeboys on Fox News. <laughs> Sometimes, in fact, in real time, you can hear what happens on Fox News, particularly the morning show, and within ninety seconds. A phrase is then tweeted out from the president. And I <laughs> I don't know whether Murdoch is actually writing his tweets for him or what. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Nobody's subbing them. It's certainly not. <laughs> well, Michael, you already alluded to it a little bit. Uh, time and again, President Trump uh, undercuts his own message and what uh, is by many accounts uh, a crisis only in his rhetoric. Uh, why does he continue to sell that message and, and how far will that go? Well, Look, you know, a, a, a year ago I had a piece in, in the New York Times, he humble bragged, pointing out that, that Trump reminds me of a lot of guys I used to see when my dad belonged to a country club. And 
these guys who are captains of industry, titans of real estate, get drunk on Sunday after playing 18 holes, and they put the world to rights. And they say, you want to know how to deal with immigration in this country? You build a goddamn wall from the Pacific to the Gulf of Mexico. And that's exactly how they sound, and that's how he thinks. And in fact, after you know, on Friday after his, he got on a helicopter, he flew down to Mar-a-Lago to play golf. And, you know... I, I honestly think he goes back to it because it's what he thinks. You, you know, um, he I don't think he ever says anything he doesn't actually believe. And, you know, we can get into a funny conversation about the difference between belief and thought. There's not much thought that goes mm. on in his head. There's a lot of gut instinct. And I think he just actually he keeps going back to it, not just because he's stroking his base in a cynical political maneuver, you know, politicians lie to their base to keep them, give them red meat, keep them active. I just think he honestly, let's be, I just think he's a racist mm. and he thinks that America is under threat from an invasion, a swarm of brown people, and this is the only way to stop them. He's also pretty hooked on the call and response of the crowd. You know, that's, that's his drug and he can't stop doing that. And when, I mean, the wall came up because his aide said, when he was campaigning, you know, don't forget about immigration. And he kind of stumbled on the idea of a wall, and it played so well that he it then became a self-reinforcing trope. I don't think he can let it go because it gets a big feedback. Yeah, exactly. I, it, he can't let it go, and it will hurt. I mean, if he makes it to 2020, and we'll come on to that at mm. the very end of the show, it will, it will hurt him definitively. Um, but, you know... It's it's a crazy waste of time, and in fact, I, it, this it's an entirely different subject. Why the Republicans let him get away with it? Guys like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, who are of Hispanic background, the Republican Party has spent twenty five years desperately trying to undo it, its bad image amongst America's growing Latino voting population. And this puts them back a full generation, without a doubt. I think we could stay here for a while, but I want to make sure we do get time for all the topics on today's show. Uh, so we will turn our attention now to China, which has for years been working to expand its economy and global reach with its Belt and Road Initiative. But now China has announced it will take aim at forging better ties between its own cities with a new economic region, including 11 cities along the Pearl River Delta. The so-called Greater Bay Area was announced earlier this week with Beijing hoping to create a new tech hotbed by also bringing Macau and Hong Kong closer to the mainland. That will be key, but perhaps worrisome for some. Uh, Isabel, what is Beijing's actual plan? Well, this uh, this has been under some intense discussion since 2006, which gives you an idea of the complications of it. Essentially, you know, one of China's success stories is in creating clusters. So they did it with industrial manufacturing, very good at organizing supply chains, etc. Now they have to move into advanced technologies in a major way. So um, Shenzhen, which it used to be a fishing village, you know, 30 years ago, is now the kind of epicenter of, of Chinese advanced technologies. And they're trying to um, build the same kind of cluster um, in this region, which is already a highly productive and efficient region. It's mm. the most modern region of China, if you like, because it has been built in the last 30 years. And it's got it's got 10 percent of um, it's got 5 percent of China's population. It produces already 10 percent of GDP. 
So I think there are two objectives. One is to uh, in further integrate uh, troublesome Hong Kong and less troublesome Macau mm. into the Chinese system and take advantage of perhaps higher levels of trust in Hong Kong's rule of law and Hong Kong's systems. Low levels of trust being quite common dealing with Chinese legal affairs. But then to... Um, make it a, a highly networked region by dint of building infrastructure, which they shouldn't really be doing because they're already highly indebted, mm. but they need an economic stimulus. So they're building more high-speed connections between these cities, between Hong Kong and Macau, um, and, and, to, and to take on Silicon Valley, yeah. essentially. That's the, you know, this is the declaration of war on Silicon Valley. That is, that is a big part of this. And, and if we look at Hong Kong specifically, Michael, of course, this could be tricky, I imagine, for the chief executive, Carrie Lam, there. But she's also already welcomed the prominent position the city would have in these plans um, and has mentioned it could help a housing shortage, among other things. And there's there's talk that people could then start commuting to the mainland. So what do you make of these sort of closer ties for Hong Kong? Well, uh, I have to say, because I've not been to Hong Kong, I, I feel a little bit on the outside of this. You know, in, in reading up for this conver bit of the conversation, you know, I was thinking, well, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, Silicon Valley wasn't centrally planned. It, it kind of grew organically between the twin hubs of Berkeley and Stanford, yeah. mm -hmm. with San Francisco as... It is the midpoint, actually. And, you know, it grew organically, and it's got to the point now where nobody can afford to live there. Even people who are being recruited by Google can't really afford to live there. Um, it seems to me that from my one visit into China, that China, the government will be better at building infrastructure for the people they expect to move there. Mm. I don't know in terms of Hong Kong, whether this will create um, a city that rivals the Bay Area mm. for this particular kind of industry, high tech. Because again, you know, high, it comes back to the chicken or the egg. If you build the city, can you then create, then suddenly does high tech occur? Or does high tech occur, and because it occurs at such a rapid pace, you have to build a city fast around it? I want to pick up actually on, on that point and, and something you already mentioned, Isabella, in that people might trust the, the system and government and, and, and way of life in Hong Kong. And we've had problems in China with Huawei and people being curious about uh, or concerned, I should say, about tech coming from China. So, so is, is that part of this, do you think, bring, bringing them into the fold? It's, it's part, well, Huawei already, their headquarters mm. is in Shenzhen. So in a sense, you know, to Michael's point, um, advanced technology has already developed in that region. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of there's six smaller cities which you, you are much less well known, mm. which um, you know which will be part of this plan. Um, but the but the row about Huawei in the United States is germane, um, as is the row about ZTE, if mm. you recall, uh, last year, because both of them depend on U.S. components. And when the United States um, put a ZTE on on the banned list because of sanctions busting in Iran, the Congress did, um, it, it shut down mm. within four months and had to be revived by a, a telephone call from Xi Jinping to Donald Trump, who lifted the ban. So... 
They're extremely aware that they are vulnerable to interruptions in supply of key components from the United States and the way things are going right now. You know, it's not beyond um, it's not beyond possibility that this might happen again. Mm. So there is a, an anxiety to become much more self-reliant. So you have this slightly anomalous situation in which China is very much kind of out in front in a number of technologies like facial recognition mm. software, for example, or um, big data because there are no impediments to the collection of data in China. And, you know, so you can kind of get get pretty advanced on that stuff. But in terms of building hardware, they still need components. And um, they're anxious, you know, not to be vulnerable to the to the political um, headwinds that, mm. that may well blow for some time. So I think there are a lot of things behind this. The other thing is, is the internationalization of the renminbi, of the Chinese currency, um, which certainly the city of London was hoping to play a major role in. But I think this is likely to be focused on, on Hong Kong now because Hong right. Kong has expertise in, in that in those areas. Um, so they're looking at all the things they need to be an advanced um, exporting kind of, you know, um, economy and saying this is where we're going to put it. Well, Michael, China has had a, a slowing economy and is dealing with the fallout, of course, with the, tr- the trade war with the United States. But uh, Isabel's already mentioned this has been in, in the works for a while. But in a sense, it, maybe it comes uh, in good timing for them uh, in trying to, uh, um, uh, you know, be very forward thinking and, and get their economy going. Well, yes, I, I suppose so. You know, this is the thing about the Chinese economy. You know, it is slowing down, and people will say six and a half percent. It could be four percent. You can't trust the Chinese um, government's data on the size and of its economy and the pace of its growth. But it's it is you know this is the joy of the centrally planned economy. You can just kind of push into an area and say, this is what we are going to do. Mm. And it's also seems to be the nature of Chinese society that people don't push back and they carry on. Although, you know, uh, they just carry on and will do... Go where the money goes. Mm. I don't know. The people of Hong Kong have been pushing back, of course, and one of the one of the you know bits of grit in the machine of this of this plan seems to me how you integrate Hong Kong further with with Guangdong, because what we've seen in Hong Kong is increasing alienation, um, certainly amongst young people since the Umbrella Movement. Um, one of the sweeteners would appear to be that um, people will find it easier to go and work. On the mainland, there's a lot of resentment between um, Hong, native Hong Kong people and mainlanders who come yeah. and enjoy Hong Kong's facilities, be they medical or, or or educational. So it would appear that workers from Hong Kong who work on the mainland, their children will be able to enjoy those social services which currently they're yeah. not allowed to. So there'll be some leveling up of of kind of benefits to Hong Kong people. That won't stop people in Hong Kong saying, hang on, one country, two systems was meant to keep a wall between us and the mainland. And this is just lowering the barriers and we become just another small part of Guangdong province. It's something uh, we will definitely be keeping an eye on here. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Beach, Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb. Coming up next, we dig into the latest political turmoil in Brazil. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip, 
Our comprehensive guides are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published with Gestalten. We've recently added Athens and Helsinki to the library, with Hamburg and Chicago coming soon. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. Still with me, Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Michael Goldfarb, veteran journalist and broadcaster. We head now to Brazil, where President Jair Bolsonaro has fired a high-profile cabinet minister just six weeks after taking office. Gustavo Bebiano was secretary general and known to be a key advisor for Bolsonaro. The reasons for his departure is a scandal involving campaign financing. Uh, Isabel, how damaging is this for Bolsonaro's very young presidency? I don't think it'll come as an enormous surprise either to uh, his supporters or his opponents. Um, But the risk he's running and the reason why this firing was so messy was the degree to which he might or might not have benefited himself from this scam. Because after all, you know, um, um, uh, Bebiano was was a key figure in in the party. He he, he chaired the party. He was a key figure in the campaign. Um, and, And what he was doing was siphoning off money to what are called orange candidates for reasons I have yet to uncover, um, but candidates who either didn't exist or weren't seriously running. So kind of public money was going into a black hole um, and it remains to be seen where it's going. Now, Foyo de São Paulo, a big newspaper in, in São Paulo, broke this story a little while ago. Um, and then uh, the initial reaction was to defend him. And it, it seems, reading between the lines, um, that Bolsonaro was slightly vulnerable to the threat that you know that that if he fired his man his man would take him down um, because he knows where the money went this was slightly complicated by the fact that that Bosnar himself was in hospital recovering from his um, uh, from his injury and his his two sons have been kind of running this particular show known as extremely abrasive characters mm. um so 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 relations got pretty tetchy and the end of it was that having defended him they that that he has stepped down but but Bolsonaro himself has been obliged to put out a video thanking him for his service and saying what a fine <laughs> fellow he was um so so what all this suggests is that there's a great deal more to come out and I'm will be reading my folio de São Paulo uh, quite eagerly over the next few days the excitement factor uh, when it comes to Bolsonaro himself seems to be a bit more muted now the scandal uh, of course playing its part but uh, after a shaky beginning is is this some way in some ways not surprising uh, well you know it isn't surprising and i think that he probably had to had to act if only because the man who was ahead of him in all the polling up to polling day when he wasn't allowed to stand his cabinet lula de silva de silva is in jail still for corruption so you have to at least give some sense of equality you know we believe in the rule of law i don't know i i think that um he's a he's an example of you know 21st century politics created on a wave of emotion gened up by social media and you know kind of irresponsible traditional media so then where are his roots where do do his feet actually touch the ground and he seems to be tumbling along and we'll see you know it depends, I suppose, on, on the system itself, how long he survives in this position. Um, 
But he was getting ready, Isabel, who reads Folio de São Paulo, um, on a regular basis, clearly, <laughs> and in the original language. <laughs> and in the original language, Naturally. of course. Mm. You, re- you read Chinese and you read Portuguese. I, I, I sort of, I can read Portuguese because I read Spanish. I can read Latin America she, for a long time. Th- yeah. There she goes. There she goes. That's a humble brag. <laughs> I read Portuguese because I read Spanish, and of course, which was it's necessary. Not exactly and the that's same. How, and that's how you got to, to know Macau so well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, just, just to come back to the point, I mean, you, you'll know better about what what this. Um, there, there was a reform, an actual. Ref- financial reform or tax reform that he was getting ready to enact. It was the pensions reform. The pensions reform. And that's, you know, it's the same problem in Italy. It's, you know, people being able to retire at some wonderful age, you know, that I long since passed and I'm not retired yet because I can't afford to because I don't get that kind of pension. And and this is is why he had to do it, isn't it? Because he he had to make a strong statement about he'll tolerate no corruption because he's about to reach into everybody's piggy bank and say, you can't retire at such and such an age, and we're reducing the amount of pension you're going to get. It is a key part. It was a key part of his platform to, to reduce. And actually, if you look at, at Social Security spending in Brazil, it is pretty much off the charts. And it goes it goes overwhelmingly to effectively to state employees mm. and teachers. So mm. it, it does need to, it um, almost certainly needs to get cut back. And of course, it's a deeply unpopular thing to do. Um, so, so yes, it was, a, it was a tricky moment. Let us finally move today back to the U.S. where veteran Senator Bernie Sanders has officially announced his second U.S. presidential bid. The 77-year-old Vermont senator became a political star back in 2016 when he narrowly lost to Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. He declared to his supporters it was time to complete the, quote, political revolution he started. Uh, with many candidates in the field, uh, could Sanders stand out as he did back in 2016 or will it further splinter the Democrats who will need a united front to unseat Trump? Uh, good move for Sanders or good move, bad move for the Democrats? What do well, you think, Well, you know, the last time I was on I, I, I said this and I'll say it again for the next eight months. The most important thing the Democrats should be doing is, is devoting all their energy to removing the clear and present danger that's in the White House. Mm. The Democrat who leads that, and is and if they're successful at it, will be the nominee for president. All of these people coming out of the woodwork now, they do it primarily because they're encouraged by their media advisors to do it because they've got to get money to get media. The media loves it because it gives them a horse race every day on days when there's really no news happening in Washington because it's gridlocked. Um, so that's one part of the argument. The second thing to say is that currently leading the field by the most recent polling, Joe Biden, Mm. former vice president, and Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden will be past 75 in 2020. Bernie will be 79. And I'm I'm going to make a bold prediction that neither man will be the nominee of the Democratic Mm. Party. It's I mean, they may do well at the in the early stages because of name recognition, but it's not going to happen. The thing that Bernie Sanders did and which makes him a really important figure in American politics last five years is that he in challenging Hillary Clinton from what we would call the left, he completely redefined what was politically possible Mm. in America. And, you know, it is no surprise that the most well-known new politician in America, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is actually um, a protege of Bernie. Her she got elected 
in New York City, basically running on his platform. All over the country, young, younger candidates, and particularly younger women, have embraced this idea of democratic socialism. That was Bernie. The question is, having defined the territory, this is a, a, a terrific phrase from a political blogger for Esquire, Charlie Pierce, today. He said, having defined the territory, does he own the real estate? Mm-hmm. He does not. And I, I don't think he will get to the finish line. And because he's a tough old Brooklyn guy, he's, even though he's from Vermont now, a tough old Brooklyn guy, he won't go gracefully, but I don't see him getting the votes in the end. He will have to consolidate behind a more progressive person. And although a lot of feminists blame him for, you know, attacking Hillary Clinton, my guess is he will end up consolidating behind uh, one of the more prominent women who are who have already declared and who are competent and who could do very well in 2020. One of those sort of more leftist policies uh, that that sort of split the Democrats in 2016. What do you what do you think will happen going forward on that platform, and and where will we see a young star emerge, perhaps, Isabel? Well, I think it's absolutely true that he changed the conversation. Mm. He changed what it was permissible to talk about. He absolutely normalized things like a more substantial substantial minimum wage. I mean, he has completely transformed it. But if you look at Congress and and on the wave of, if you like, Bernie Sanders enthusiasm, you have this new wave of, of, of lots of women and younger people in Congress. And there's a very stark contrast between in, in the House of um, in, in the House between the new wave and the and the older established, you know, legacy politicians. And he's he ha- is in this anomalous position because it's absolutely right. He'll be 77. Joe Biden is n- not of the left and and will also be in his 70s. But if you look at the reaction, for example, to Ocasio Cortez's Green New Deal, it was very much kind of patting her on the head and mm. saying, "Yes, we love the enthusiasm from the older, from the older, older party members who still sort of control the machine." So I think there's a lot to play for in this, and there's a, you know, who is going to define the Democratic Party is going to be acted out through but, this campaign. It's interesting. For the next it's, few it's, years. it's it's not just you know the people who've been in Congress a very long time, but also. You know the, the establishment press in Washington. They they have long since stopped reporting news. They they sort of just pass judgment on this and that. And they still think that the the only way to win the presidency is to win it from the center. And then you have a guy like Donald Trump who is so anomalous mm. and and crude and and you know not from the center. He's not from mm. the right. He's not from the left. He's from the authoritarian potential dictator wing of politics everywhere. And you think, no, 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 no. The younger voters who don't vote a lot but are enthused now do want these basic changes. It's the New Deal, the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal brought to fruition. Medicare for all, they like that idea. A better, more affordable way to get higher education. Bernie came out with that. And I think that there is actually much more enthusiasm if your filter is the main the beltway press i don't think you get the sense of the enthusiasm that is out there for this kind of politics mm. could bernie maybe hang on to the nomination and run with a female vice i don't think so only because in the end um 
I don't like identity politics, but I think he just reads too much as a, I hate to say it this way, Brooklyn Jew, even though he's been in Vermont for 50 years. And I don't think America is ready to <laughs> to elect a guy who's going to be 80 a year after he takes office. I just don't see it. We'll have to leave it there, both. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and Michael Goldfarb, fantastic analysis. As ever, today's show produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.